I want to share with you a text on this Sunday morning. It is found in John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I certainly encourage you to follow along. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother, Mary, was there at the wedding, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to this wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to her son, They have no more wine. Dear woman, Jesus replied, Why do you involve me in this? His mother said to the servants, Whatever Jesus tells you to do later on, I want you to do it. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for the washing of hands and feet, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Draw some out and take it to the master of the ceremonies. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said to him, Everyone brings out the best wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But amazingly, you have saved the best wine until the end. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at the small village of Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed who he was. He revealed his glory. And his disciples, upon seeing this miracle, they put their faith in him. The text I have just shared with you is part of the story of the first miracle of our Lord, the turning of water into wine. The Apostle John, when he records this miracle, he doesn't call it a miracle, he calls it a sign. And if you look at the Gospel of John, there is never a miracle that performs, that has been performed by Jesus that he does not call a sign. He doesn't call it a miracle, he calls it a sign. In John 20, 30 and 31, John writes, Jesus did many other signs not recorded in this book, but these signs are recorded that you might believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. In John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, and he says to Jesus, no one could do the signs that you have done unless they have come from God. Why does John not talk about the miracle? Why does he refer to it as a sign? Quite simply, for the Apostle John, the important thing was not the miracle itself. The important thing was what the miracle showed. The miracle put a mirror up to the face of Jesus and it gave you a sign, an indelible sign, an unforgettable sign, a non-argumentative sign that this man was from God, that he was a son of God as he himself would proclaim later on in his ministry. The miracles of Jesus, the signs of Jesus, they show something about his character, they show something about his purpose for being in this world. 
And they show something about the way he achieves his purposes. And all three of those purposes are evidence in the very first miracle he ever did. I want to look at a couple of lessons learned from this first miracle. And in a couple of weeks when we are gathered here, Pastor Shower preaching next weekend, me the following weekend, I want to conclude this message, which is entitled, The Best is Yet to Be. The first lesson we learn from this miracle is the revelation of Jesus in the commonplace activities of life. He is interested in ordinary folks. He's interested in our ordinary joys and our ordinary sorrows. The scene here is a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Who is the bride? We don't know. John leaves her nameless. She is some peasant girl in a small village with no ranking in the social register of the day. Who's the bridegroom? We don't know that either. He's just a common, ordinary, rustic folk. But when Jesus receives an invitation to this wedding, he accepts the invitation. Not out of a sense of duty, not condescendingly, not because he can get something from these two people if he shows up at their wedding. He does it because he's keenly interested in them. And why is he interested in them? Not because of who they are, not because of what they are. He's interested in them because they're human personalities. They are people that God has created on this earth. They are his brothers and his sisters. And he loves people. There are individuals who sit at malls. There are individuals who sit down on the lakefront. Uh, they're Lake Michigan. And they sit there for two or three hours. And when you ask them what they're doing, they're saying, we're just watching people. We're people watchers. We love to watch people. Jesus doesn't just love to watch people. Jesus likes to step into their lives and become one with them. Their common joys, their common sorrows, and their common ordinary lives. And there's Jesus. What Jesus did here is typical of his conduct throughout his entire ministry. Whenever he received an invitation to someone's house, he went. He did it whether that invitation was someone very rich, like Zacchaeus, or someone very poor. He received an invitation from a male or a female, and he went. He actually went to homes of those who were friendly to him, and he went to homes of those who were hostile to him. He went to homes of those who were socially prominent. And he went to homes of those who were utter outcasts. That was Jesus. He was interested in folks as such. Never once did you find him paying particular attention to an individual because of their wealth or their rank or their achievement or their intellectual gifts or their social position. He leaves that for us. He leaves that for us. We judge people at a mere glance. 
We look at a person, we'd say, heavy or thin. We look at a person and we'd say, rich or poor. We look at a person and we'd say, black or white or African-American or Chinese. We have labels instantly. And as soon as we've labeled a person, we've already begun to say, here's how my heart is going to react to them, and here's how my body language is going to react to them. There was a woman not too long ago, she said to me that she had gone out shopping and she had not put on on any makeup and she had gone in rather drab clothes. And when she walked into this store... She said not only didn't she receive attention from anybody, but they could hardly wait for her to leave the building. She said, Pastor, I went the next day, I had my makeup on, I was dressed in my very best, and the people just came rushing to me. They could hardly wait to serve me. And that's all of us, sadly, right? That's all of us. We are interested in certain kinds of folks. But Jesus is just interested in folks. So since Jesus was interested in this bride and groom, all that concerned them concerned him. When an embarrassment arose because the bridegroom did not have enough wine, Jesus knew that embarrassment was going to become theirs. The bridegroom is going to be embarrassed. The bride was going to be embarrassed. Her family is going to be embarrassed. And his family is going to be embarrassed. And since this is a small village, they're going to be talking about this for a decade. And Jesus, to save them from embarrassment, he changes water into wine. This is not a matter of life and death. This is not a matter of of him being crippled or him being blind or she being demon-possessed. For Pete's sake, they've run out of wine. And Jesus' heart is of such compassion that he wants to save them from embarrassment. He interested himself for the third time. He interested himself in the ordinary joys and the ordinary sorrows of human beings. There was a man in this congregation six weeks ago. He said to me, I've lost my job. COVID virus, I've lost my job. I said, have you been furloughed or have you been laid off permanently? He said, I've been laid off permanently. I said to him, let me have a prayer with you. This gentleman said to me, I would not bother God with such a small matter as to whether I have a job or not. Oh, my goodness. He said, I would not bother God about so small a matter as whether I have a job or not. He has more important things to do. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I said to him, I know you've got two children. If your children come walking up to you and they have a furrowed brow or they look sad or they look hurt or angry, do you have limits as to what you will help them with? Do you have categories for your children that you'll help them with? 
And if they venture into a territory that you don't think is sufficiently important, will you say to them, don't bother me with that little stuff? And he said to me, because he loves his children so much, he said to me, I would never do that. If my children want to talk to me about the smallest thing, they can talk with me about the smallest thing. If they want to talk with me about the largest thing, they can talk with me about the largest thing. If they're sad or hurt or angry or a furrowed brow, I want them to talk to me. And I smiled. And I said, do you know where I'm headed? And he smiled back and he said, I know where you're headed. I said, let me tell you about God. Let me tell you that in Matthew 10, Jesus said, a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God knowing about it and being concerned. You're saying that you can't go to God and ask him about a job because he's got more important things to do. Is the more important thing at taking care of sparrows when they fall to the ground? He smiles. I said in the same chapter, it says he's got the hairs of your head all numbered. He's got enough time to take care of sparrows and to number the hairs on your head. You would never refuse your children or your teenagers if they have something they want to bring to you. I said the same thing pertains to God and his love for us. For the fourth time, he's concerned with our ordinary joys and our ordinary sorrows. The man then said to me, Pastor, would you pray for me? And I said, I'll pray for you pertaining to your job and whatever else you want me to pray for, provided you promise me that over these next days and weeks, you too will pray to God about not only your job, about whatever is troubling your heart on that day. We shook hands and the deed was done. The pact was made. What Jesus was before he went to the cross, he was after the cross. There's a beautiful story that John gives us. He's risen from the dead. It's before the 40 days where he ascends up into heaven. I preached on this maybe six months ago. Uh, Seven guys are out there on the fishing boats, and they fished all night, haven't caught anything. There's a guy on the shore. They don't recognize him. It's misty, the morning fog. And the guy on the shore says to them, Lads, have you caught any fish? And they said to him, Haven't caught any fish. Tried all night. The one on the beach, namely Jesus, said to them, Go back out, throw your nets on the other side of the boats. Was he doing this so he could perform a miracle? Not really. Why was he doing it? For the same reason he healed a blind man. And for the same reason that there were 10,000 hungry people on a hillside, and Jesus said to his disciples, they are hungry, and they need food. He didn't say to them, I'm I'm about to perform a miracle, one of the greatest ones in the New Testament. He said, these people are hungry, and we need to feed them. It just isn't trite words out of his mouth because as I've told you a million times in 32 years, the last parable 
You saw someone who was hungry and you fed him thirsty. You gave him something to drink naked and you put clothes on him. He's concerned if you're hungry. They come on shore. They have a boatload of fish. What else does Jesus do? He fixes breakfast for them. For Pete's sake, they're hungry. They fished all night. Now they have fish. Now they'd be able to get some money for their family for the day. But he fixes breakfast for them because they're hungry. What is going on in your life? What is going on in your personal life? It was one thing with the COVID virus. That was enough weight, don't you think? And now this incredible violence, which I hope, and by the time you hear this in five days, will have greatly diminished. What is going on in your life? Wedding plans chaotically having to be changed. Jobs furloughed or lost. Health issues. Whatever has your brow furrowed or your heart troubled, you bring it to him. Don't you ever say he's too busy for this little stuff. Hairs on your head numbered, sparrows falling to the ground, and he is concerned about it. Whatever concerns you concerns your Father in heaven. There is a second lesson to be learned. This miracle of Jesus is a sign of the purpose of him being in this world. What has he come to do? What has he come to accomplish? He's not a thief who's come to rob, steal, or destroy. He's not come to take our laughter or to cheat us out of our joy or to steal our money from our paycheck. He's not come to take one single gleam of sunshine out of your life. He's come to flood your life with that sunshine. And there's one way he does it. He transfigures and he transforms. He snaps his finger and water is turned into wine. He snaps his finger and a blind man sees. He gives new glory to everything upon which he lays his hands. He makes the useless into the useful. He lifts the lower into the higher. He makes the bland water of this worthless drink blush into fine red wine. He transforms deserts into gardens. And he transforms the world's moral waste into the world's moral wealth. He's here to make all things new. If I ask you how many prodigal sons are in the Bible, you'd say one. Luke 15, story of the prodigal son. And I would say to you gently, your answer is wrong. The Bible is filled with prodigal sons. Moses murdering an Egyptian. Abraham doing his thing contrary to God. King David's atrocious sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. Twelve disciples abandon him. Simon Peter curses and swears and says, I don't know who Jesus is. As many biographies are there are in the Bible, that is how many prodigal sons there are. And what does he do with the prodigal sons? He touches them with his spirits. 
and they are transformed. The operation described, I mentioned it last week at Pentecost, the operation described in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the world. Let an operation be done so that you are transformed by the changing of your mind, your heart, your purpose, the way you look at things, the words that come out of your mouth. The irony, as we look at things of this past week, Romans 12, 17 Bless those who curse you. Bless and do not curse. Return no man evil for evil. Wouldn't it be something if God's Spirit got a hold of so many, including us, and transformed? I think it was four years ago that we did our first vlog. And once we are through taping these services... We'll have time to put up some new, ordinary vlogs again. I had a vlog a, a number of years ago, maybe two years ago, two and a half years ago. And in that vlog, I said, I love nothing more than driving down the street where there's new construction going on. And I drive down there once a week, once a month, whatever, and I see the building go up. And I said, I love it when you're watching some show and they fast forward through a building going up. And I remember Drew putting on something in that vlog where you saw this building miraculously go up in about three or four minutes. I love seeing spaces transformed. I love it when the coronavirus begins to be lifted by the hand of God and restrictions being lifted I love looking over there at Pepe's and, and seeing tables and chairs and people sitting in them. I love watching these different businesses as they're opening up. Life is returning. The brown pastures of the last two and a half months are becoming green, and we see it before our very eyes. Our Lord transforms. When I was in high school, I loved to watch, uh, to read biographies. I'd read one after another, after another, after another. There was one biography I read. His name was Luther Burbank. Uh, he was a botanist. He lived out west. And uh, Luther Burbank, his favorite uh, plant was a cactus. He spent two decades working on the cactus. And by the time he was through with the cactus, he had produced a breed of cactus with soft petals and beautiful blossoms instead of sharp thorns and leathery leaves. He got a hold of a plant and he transformed it. The supreme artist in this work of lifting the lower to the higher is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He takes a blundering fisherman named Simon Peter, a creature of impulse, as unstable as water, and makes him into a rock of Christ-like character. He finds a thunderbolt named John, incapable of controlling his temper, actually asking Jesus to let him call down fire from heaven that had on a village that had disrespected our Lord. By the time that he is true with John, John is the apostle of love. He finds a greedy tax collector named Matthew. By the time he's true with Matthew, he's transformed into a person who writes the first gospel. 
And he takes a demon-possessed woman named Mary whose life has been utterly destroyed by the demon. And by the time he's through, she is the first witness of his resurrection from the dead. He lifts the lower to the higher. He lifts the lost into the territory of the founds. He is the same Christ today, touching every life that is surrendered to him, touching every gift we put into his hands, not to cheapen, to spoil, or to rob, but to transform and to, to transfigure, to glorify, to glorify our Lord, to glorify his kingdom, and to glorify you, a humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me have a prayer with you. Heavenly Father, we gather together to worship, to hear the stories of the power and the love of God. They've done it ever since the day of Isaiah, 2,700 years ago. And we're still doing it. In the midst of that which the world brings to us, Satan's activity is so evident. <laughs> Here comes God, and his spirit descends, and he grabs hold of evil, and he turns it into good, lifting the lower into the higher. And as we saw acts of kindness during COVID virus, so we have seen acts of kindness during these unbelievably ugly riots. We see police officers hugging those protesting. We see communities gathered together in front of stores, sweeping up the glass, helping the owners clean everything up. Oh, my Lord and my God, as my mother said so many years ago when my dad died, what we do, what we do, we do Lord, without you and with you, we can do anything and everything. Transform us, water into wine, in our Savior's name. Amen.